Hey, how's it going? Um, I, I hope you're doing well. Um, yeah, so today, um, today is a Friday and I think it's the 6th of December. Let me check. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't even know, like, obviously I knew it was December, but only to the extent that like, I knew that it was like the 12th month of the year. And I didn't, I didn't really think about it any more than that. Um, and then it, it dawned, uh, on me that, um, that this is the final month of the year and it's been 12 months, nearly, nearly 12 full months since the year began. Um, and I, I don't even know how that has happened. I really, I, I don't know how 12 months have gone by. Like, um, over New Year's, over, I think from like the 30th of December until the 2nd of January of this year, so 30th, whatever, 30th of December 2018 to January 2, 2019, I went on a hike with a friend. And I remember being on that hike and it was like pretty grueling and pretty challenging and pretty hard. And I remember that time went by really slowly. Like we had these huge backpacks on um, with food and water and stuff. And yeah, I guess, I guess because like, we had we had this kind of clear objective, which was not not to die, and like to be able to eat food and you know kind of find somewhere to camp for the night. Um, yeah, I guess I was much more aware of like how my body was feeling, and I also have like a crippling phobia of snakes, and so like every single thing that ever touched my leg um, on the hike, I would like jump and like like bend down and check for like two prick marks. Um, Fortunately, I wasn't bitten by a snake, but, um, yeah, I'll have to tell you all a story about how this one time I convinced myself that, um, I thought I was bitten by a snake and ended up in hospital, but that's a story for another time. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, the point, the point of that little, uh, side note was that on this hike, as I said before, time was going by very slowly and these four days felt, yeah, like they, they really, really felt, um, eternal. Um, and I think like at, at a very, uh, conducting a very, very basic analysis of the past 11 months and those four days, I think the reason why, um, the, those four days felt slow was because, yeah, because like there was, um, I was taking a great, a great risk compared to my normal life, which is very safe, um. And, and I had to be much more aware of how I was fitting in the world around me. Um, because, you know, some of the, uh, part of the hike, we were on a kind of cliff face and, you know, one wrong step and, you know, you take flight. Um, and it's not a nice kind of flight. I imagine it would be, um, a very painful flight. Um, yeah. Um, and the past 11 months, like I've kind of had a pretty consistent routine. Like the first, first four months I was studying a lot um first five months I was studying a lot and then I kind of moped around eastern Europe for a while and now I'm in London also studying but not really I'm kind of just um yeah I like I I was talking to Steph and if you don't know who Steph is I actually did an interview with Steph and it's a really interesting episode I really need to stop describing things as interesting it's awful I don't know why that's the thing that I just always the word that I always use anyway I'm sorry about that um 
<laughs> I'm not even going to try. But you should listen to the episode with Steph. Um, it's great. There, that's much better. Um, yeah, Steph was my housemate when back when I was living in Melbourne. And uh, yeah, the past, the past few months in London... Um, oh, no, what was I saying? Yeah, I was on the phone to Steph. And we were talking about how both of us um, kind of crave the consistency of routine um, and kind of constantly look for that and try and have our lives revolve around a consistency of that kind, like waking up at the same time, exercising um, at the same time, uh, exercising for the same amount of time, eating regularly, um, drinking enough water, all that kind of stuff. Um, which like, I don't, I don't know. I don't really know anyone who does that. Um, I don't, I don't think anyone, anyone who tells you that they, if anyone tells you that they do all that stuff, like they're definitely lying because it's definitely impossible. Um, maybe it's possible. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but there was something that both of us identified, which was kind of like a shared fear of, um, of like really committing to, to something. Um, like both Steph and I are trying to learn Arabic at the moment. Um, I lived in Morocco for a few months and, and studied it more intensely over there. Um, and Steph is now studying in Melbourne, but both of us, uh, kind of described the same experience of like, um, of being really keen to kind of improve our skills and commit to this language, but also realizing that it's like a task that will take years and years of focus and years of commitment. Um, and that, that is a really daunting thought and a really frightening thought. Um, years of commitment, uh, and so I tend to shy away from things like that. Like I kind of obsess about things very briefly, um, like really intensely. Like I'll spend hours per day playing guitar. And then fortunately I started playing guitar when I was very young. Um, and so kind of the muscle memory has, um, is really deeply imprinted in my brain. And so um, there isn't, you know, I've never really had much of a steep learning curve with that or anything like that. Um, but other things like Arabic or other languages or new skills, like I tried to learn to code and I kind of obsessed for a few days and then I was like, shit, this is going to be like, this is going to be a lot, like lots of hours. And then I kind of freak out and then, yeah. And so then I kind of go into this really weird state of being, which is very kind of, um, it's kind of like hedonistic, but, but like gently and respectfully hedonistic, both to myself and to I hope to others around me. So what do I mean by that? What's hedonism? Well, if you don't know what hedonism is, um, it is the kind of, uh, I guess it describes, uh, I, okay, so a hedonist is a person who pursues pleasure. Um, but I guess the kind of hedonism that I'm describing is like, um, it's kind of like, a, I guess there should be a qualifying word, like an impulsive hedonism or a a kind of hedonism in response to my emotional states. So like, um, when I'm feeling sad, which I feel pretty often, like most, most of the time, um, I, I engage with that quite a lot and I take the time to engage with that. And I'm often not aware that I'm taking the time to engage with it. And so, um, in this phone conversation I was having with Steph, I, she was like, what have you been up to for the past few days? And I kind of sat there and I was like, like, I, I don't even know. Like, it feels like I've done nothing. And I can't, I told her that. I was like, it really feels like I've done nothing. Like, I don't even know what I did yesterday. Like, I woke up. Um, I went on a walk. Uh, 
and then like I I washed my clothes and then I put them on like the drying rack and then I like drank tea and then I bought a thermos and then I like filled the thermos up with tea and then went on another walk and like that was kind of it but like in between like those kind of physical tasks there's a lot of like cognitive well I think like maybe maybe presumably hopefully there had been a lot of cognitive activity but to be honest I wasn't even particularly aware of much going on in my head um and and I think I think it's because um I I don't I think I have a really troubled and difficult relationship with time and the present moment and I think the reason why the past year has been so fast for me is that I haven't had enough experiences like that hike where for four days, I was completely focused on what my body, my what my body was feeling, based on the world around me, um, as opposed to what my emotional states were. Um, because I think when I focus on feelings of being sad, I kind of they're kind of like a disembodied experience. Like I don't feel sad in my like toes or on my shin or like on my kneecaps. Like I feel sad um, like inside me, and it's not the like I can kind of forget about the outside world um and disengage with it and i think i don't know maybe that that's just kind of um if i were if i if i were to tell you why the past year feels like it's roared by um i think it's because i've spent most of it in the future um thinking about how i should be or how things should be um and also and also being quite spontaneous um, so kind of waiting to see how I'll feel and then basing my kind of lifestyle decisions around that. Um, and I, I don't know, like that, that's, it's, that's just how I am. Um, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm a pretty quiet person. Um, I don't, I don't go out too much at night. Um, <laughs> geez, what sort of life am I describing? Um, no, like, like really, like a lot of people like going out clubbing and stuff and I don't know, I think like I, I'm not too good in the evenings, like I, I get pretty down, so I, I get pretty depressed, so I, I stay in and I make sure that like I'm looking after myself, but that, that is like, like sometimes, like I, I have to wait to feel that way, um, and the reason why like this whole idea of waiting to feel a certain way is essentially what this episode is about. Um, so today I spoke with um, this professor from King's College, which is where I'm currently studying, uh, King's College London. Um, I study philosophy and he is a, a lecturer in philosophy, um, a professor. Um, he just finished, his, he's pretty young. Um, uh, if you're listening, Jonathan, that's a compliment. <laughs> um, uh, his name is Jonathan, um, uh, and Jonathan is a philosopher um, who also studied a law degree, um, which is interesting. So uh, he studied at Harvard, which is pretty fucked up. That's pretty crazy. Um, he studied law at Harvard, which is like, I don't know, the best law school in the world or something. Um, so he's a clever dude. Um, and and we had we had this, yeah, like this pretty incredible conversation about spontaneity and and why it should be protected um and i guess i i had that really long 
pr- that really long introduction as a kind of exercise for myself to see how how um, it was totally unscripted. Obviously, like th- this whole show, everything I say is unscripted. But normally, I kind of like have a brief brainstorm um, about where I want to take the kind of introduction and what announcements I want to make and that kind of stuff. But I decided to just kind of be as spontaneous as I could be, and and that that's what came out. Um, so yeah, today today that's that's what this interview is about. It's about the philosophy, the art, the beauty of spontaneity, and also um, the kind of troubles and the misfortune and the sorrow um, and the inequality that arise from a lack of spontaneity. And before we get onto the episode, I need to make a few brief announcements. Um, one, if you like the podcast. Um, please consider supporting it, um, and you can do so in a number of ways. And you need to you need to realize that I'm not calling for anything big here. I'm not calling for a hundred thousand dollars or pounds. Um, I mean, if you have that kind of money and you like my podcast that much, you know, by all means. Um, but no, what what I'm calling for really is just like um, imagine like you buying me a tea, two two dollars. Um, that like that, that's the kind of contribution that I'm asking for. Um, just just something, something to kind of help me, um, help me continue making this podcast better and help me kind of um, be able to spend more time on this because, um, yeah, I you know I I kind of it's it's time and money demanding uh, making this this kind of work. Um, so please, if 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 you're able to consider pledging a little bit, you can do so via PayPal. Um, or you can do so via Patreon. I would probably encourage you to use Patreon because um, I will start releasing some kind of um, patron-only content, um, which people uh, only people who who kind of um, have donated money will be able to access. Um, and and I think that's great because that kind of builds a, a, um, a, a more of a kind of uh, closer knit community between me and and people who are willing to kind of engage with the podcast um in a way that that allows me to feel some kind of uh appreciation for my work um and obviously like you know money like i'll feel i'll feel like i feel a lot of appreciation because the more and more that i've told people to kind of engage with me and talk to me about stuff and send me messages and respond to the podcast the more people have done that so also take that as a hint that I really enjoy reading the messages that you all send me. Um, uh, some of them, some of them um, warm my heart. Uh, some of them break my heart. Um, uh, so please, please consider, um, yeah, please consider reaching out to me and saying hey, uh, telling me what you think about the episodes, and please consider supporting the podcast in whatever way you can. Um, I'll put a link for you to support the podcast in my um, in my. In, uh, in the in the bio for the podcast and I'll also put it on my Instagram page um, uh, which is Alex Listens so you should go and follow me if you haven't um, yeah and if you want to just go on the internet now which you can do and support the podcast um, go on www.alexalex.co co slash contribute um, and then yeah you'll have links to PayPal and Patreon um on that page. I think the link to Patreon is a little bit further down, so you might have to scroll a bit, but yeah, Patreon's great. Um, 
I think I've given it enough of a wrap and it means a lot to me and it will help me continue making this show and making it better. Um, so thank you. Thanks for listening. Uh, and as usual, enjoy the episode. I think it's really cool. So thank you. Bye. So Jonathan, first of all, thank you. Thank you for making time to to come on to the podcast I, it, it means a lot to me thank you very much for having me yeah um okay and i i suppose the first thing that i would like to hear your thoughts about are your phd which you recently kind of recently finished yes uh i just over a year ago okay yeah. okay yeah and congratulations that's pretty incredible um in preparing for this i tried to kind of do some reading of it and i didn't realize how long they are it was like <laughs> 190 pages or something yeah they're they're long um yeah. and that's that's not atypical for an american phd I was, okay. I, you know, so, some are some are much longer than that even really yes why uh, who who has the like because the thing that i don't understand about phds is that Unless you're in the academic world, they don't seem to kind of have any, like, if you're not, yeah, if you're not in the academic world, how are you supposed to get in touch with or engage with an 190-page thing that is extremely specific? Well, uh, they are fundamentally academic documents. Okay. They're, they're, okay. they're not, a, a, a doctoral dissertation is not a document for... Uh, consumption outside of the academic community, really. It's it's written it's written to satisfy the requirements of a degree, um, and um, although they are at least in the United States, they're almost all publicly available. They're published by universities that they're submitted to, and I think that they sort of have you know why are they so long? Uh, Because they're supposed to provide an opportunity to do sort of like a sustained amount of writing and thinking okay. that demonstrates sort of a very high level of professional confidence that can only be accomplished by doing something that's much longer than just writing like one paper. Yeah, right, right. Um, and the form that they now take in the United States is, and I, I know less about the UK context, but I think to some extent here too, um, Sometimes they're just a collection of papers. Okay. So you, you write like four or five papers about related themes in philosophy and put them together and call it a dissertation. And sometimes they're more like a book, mm. um, like a long academic monograph written for a specialist audience. Okay. Um, and and yours, was, um, yours was about a really intriguing sounding topic, which was the, the philosophy of spontaneity and... and yeah, some, something along those lines, right? Yes, that's yeah. right. On on what I call spontaneous freedom. Okay, okay. And um, what? How would you describe that kind of freedom? Like, why? Why is it something that you decided to <laughs> write hundred <laughs> ninety pages worth of content on? Right. I mean, it's a it's a it's a it's sort of a uh, writing hundred and ninety pages on sp spontaneity is not the most spontaneous thing that one no, can do. No, um, surely you were the opposite in terms <laughs> of your preparation. I imagine you were meticulous and, and organized. Then, well, we, we, <laughs> <laughs> we might hope. Okay. okay. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, 
Well, so so by spontaneous freedom, I I mean something sort of like everyday experiences that we think of as as spontaneous, right? And particularly, I mean experiences that you have when you feel that what you're doing isn't settled in advance, whether by you or by some other person. Yeah, right. So um, a free will of sorts. It's it's a little. I think it's a little bit different from what is classically thought of as free will and free will debates. Right. Um, because I think that this is not the sort of experience that's threatened by the truth of determinism, for instance. Um, it could be that everything you do is sort of part of a causal chain set in motion by the history of the universe. Yeah. Um, but that wouldn't necessarily compromise your experiences of spontaneous freedom because you wouldn't thereby experience what you're doing as settled by yourself or some other person. Yeah, right, right, right. So it's, it, it's, it's very focused on this sort of... Um, uh, I'd say sort of like uh, individual and social aspect of freedom rather than something more metaphysically grand. Okay. And so is it, when you say an individual and social aspect, is it an individual and social feeling that individuals and societies can experience of not having things kind of um, set in stone, not, not feeling as though you're already committed to being a certain way? I think it's certainly a, a feeling that individuals have. Okay. And, and, and part of how I got into this was just thinking about what the, what the phenomenology of freedom is like, what, what the internal first personal experience is of being free. Right. And, um, and, you know, a lot of philosophical literature about freedom is about, um, I don't know, the ability to act according to reasons mm. or... Um, the ability to act in ways that aren't coerced. Um, and I thought that a lot of this left out this very important aspect of freedom that shows up a lot in sort of like folk conceptions of freedom. When you listen to like rock and roll songs about the freedom of the open road or something <laughs> like that. Um, or, or you read like Whitman's poetry and he's, and he's talking about freedom. Yeah, right. Um, there's this other notion of freedom that um, th that is very closely connected to these experiences of spontaneity, of not having things settled in advance or not having things all thought through before you do them. And so I wanted to sort of pick up on that individual experience and explore um, what makes that experience possible, what undermines it, what value, if any, it has, and sort of the significance of thinking about the value of that sort of freedom for ethics and political theory. Okay. Um, and I'm I'm much less I I don't know about about whether societies can have an experience of this. Um that I think that raises a lot of questions about like the attributions of feelings or mental states to collectives that yeah. that that don't come up in the individual case. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Okay. And I would agree. I like yeah, with without going down the path of philosophy of mind, it doesn't seem like a society can have the same conscious experience of things as as a person, but right. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to think that there might be some analogous sort yeah, of yeah, yeah. Uh, attributability of hmm. sort of 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 conscious. I don't know of some sort of analogous state to a collective, but it's there's not going to be like a, a point of viewness that's yeah, a yeah. unified point of view that that a that a community has that 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 an individual does. Okay, um, and in today's world, um, I guess in, in your world, in the world of I guess in your decision making, like today, have you felt as though you've been able to exercise the kind of spontaneous freedom that it, I didn't? I didn't finish your thesis. I read about fifteen pages, but I 
from from reading the abstract, the short, the long, both of those, and the first 15 pages, it seemed like you were going to advocate for kind of um, creating a world where the exercising of, of that kind of spontaneous freedom is something that is universal and um, available to everyone. Yes, I think that's, I mean, I think that's the direction that I'm going. I maybe hesitate a little bit on, on universal. Okay. Um, because I, 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 I fundamentally, I think that this is sort of like, um, spontaneous freedom is a, is a way of articulating one particular ethical ideal of freedom. Yeah. It's not, it's not an attempt to provide sort of like a concept of freedom that does, uh, so, so there are some, there are some concepts of freedom that sort of do all of the work that there is to do in moral and political philosophy. So there's sort of a Kantian understanding of freedom, um, that that sees freedom as sort of the value that shapes political philosophy, um, s- s- such that when if you if you have sort of a full articulation of what freedom is, that's going to tell you what state activity is and isn't legitimate, what's what's required of the state, morally speaking, and so forth. Um, I I take an approach that's much more pluralistic in regard to what sorts of freedom might be realized in in different lives. Okay. Um, and and so some people are going to some pe- I think some people are you know care more about realizing experiences of spontaneous freedom than do others. Mm. Um, th- that's the caution about universalism. But at the same time, I do think that there are uh, sort of great values that come from having experiences of of spontaneous freedom. Mm. Um, although they, they they might sometimes conflict with with realizing other values yeah right um um you know to 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 take it to a bit of an extreme you know i think we we all know flaky people um (laughs) and uh and and that they can be uh frustrating or infuriating to deal with sometimes Mm. although there there might be aspects of the of their personalities that also realize some values associated with spontaneity i think yeah right um because I want. I I thought about. I thought about um, how much I liked the claim that you were making, and there was one thing that I thought was particularly powerful, and that was that in your long abstract, you you said that um, moral philosophers pretty much have quite a low a low threshold for freedom, and the freedom that they kind of want is the freedom to be morally. To, to exercise enough freedom so that one is morally responsible for their behavior, right? And I, I, may, maybe I, I've kind of jumbled your words a little bit, but that really spoke to me. I, I was like, yeah, we need, like that. that isn't a very high level of freedom that people are exercising to be morally responsible because like, again, like, you know, they might be acting on the duress and like there are just all of these kind of colors and clouds that you can add to the kind of total calculus of freedom that you're trying to... Um, trying to reach but i i also thought about the the opposite scenario which is what you described like flaky people um and my mum is an extremely spontaneous person and and my parents separated when i was quite young so i was raised by my mum and her kind of inability to be at places when she would say that she was going to be there was really troubling for me growing up. Um, and in in retrospect, what she was doing was essentially exercising this incredible kind of spontaneity where she'd be like, 
Uh, or like, I've told my son that I'll get him from, you know, the kind of after school care thing that he's at. I've told him that they'll be there at five o'clock. But really, the after school care program runs until 8.30. So like, I'm going to go have a cafe, uh, a coffee. I'm going to read my favorite book. I'm going to talk to my friend. And then like, seven-year-old me is kind of internally combusting <laughs> at school, worrying where my mum is. But so, so yeah, there is this kind of like... Um, it can lead to uh, ramifications for other people. There can be consequences for other people. So, where I guess that's right. I think, and I think that especially in sort of like relationships of care. Yeah, right. Um, where there's sort of like there are vulnerable people involved. That's that that really comes to the fore. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I think that's absolutely right. And 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 really, I think that um, well. I th- so th- there may be a few things. Um, one is I think that there's a this gives rise to one for for, for one thing to a, a sort of gendered dimension of experiences of spontaneous freedom, um, where you know it, you'll find um, you know if in 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 literature for instance you'll find lots of stories of sort of like. I don't know. Just to t- to take a to take a type like great male artists leaving their families and going off and accomplishing something, yeah. sort of on the spur of a moment or something, um, and um, that doesn't happen n- nearly as much for sort of female characters in similar situations in the history of literature who have caring obligations, mm. um, and. I think one thing that this suggests is that insofar as spontaneous freedom instantiates values that are worth pursuing, um, it suggests sort of a need for, um, for, for, for more socialized forms of care. Right. Um, and I, I think there's actually a lot of resonance between my project and sort of like wages for houseworks, housework projects in feminist theory. Um, that that focus on treating caring responsibilities not as something that are just isolated on individuals, but instead something that can be collectivized in in some ways. Okay. Um, and 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 I think part of the value of those sorts of projects is that they make it more possible for people who now have lots of caring obligations to have experiences of spontaneous freedom without putting the people who they care for at at risk. Yeah. Right. Right. Um. And because I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that, that that is something that, that those roles of, of care and, um, and I guess kind of um, any role where, where socially there is kind of an expectation for people to stay put and where it's seen as irresponsible for people to kind of deviate from the putness that we expect them to be in. Like maybe... Maybe people might consider what my mum did to me as an irresponsible act. Um, but really, there were kind of structures in place for me to be safe and cared for until 8.30. And she came and got me before 8.30. So, like, I was okay, but um, that's a privilege. Right, um, right. And so, are you kind of, are you calling for um, kind of like uh, better social welfare or better kind of uh, institutions for uh, single parents or something like that, where they can kind of 
be part of a, a stronger community which cares for people that need to be cared for such that they can then kind of go, oh, you know what, like, I'm kind of, I, I kind of want to do this right now. And like, so long as that thing that they want to do isn't pathological and isn't like, um, like harming someone else, uh, you know, like maybe they want to read a book in the park. And yeah. like, that's a really nice thing to yeah. do. And I'm sure yeah. both of us as people who are like in the academic world kind of in- enjoy that freedom. Yeah. Like we go yeah. and read in parks and we read in classrooms and stuff. But like if we were living paycheck to paycheck and um, like I- I'm a student, I guess you've kind of got like a proper job as, a- as an academic. But like if I was living paycheck for paycheck, I don't pay- if I was living paycheck to paycheck, I don't think I'd have the time to go and, or maybe I, I wouldn't really have the time or energy to kind of go and sit in a park and read a book. So like what, where is the kind of, where is, because your, your, your role in the academic world is the philosophy of law, or that's the kind of area that you're focusing on. So is this, are you calling for kind of policy change or? Mm, I don't know if I'm calling for policy change. Okay. I mean, or, I don't know that I'm that I'm that I'm aiming to speak in in sort of the register of policy to okay. policymakers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, I I think I think I think you're absolutely right about work and its effects on our ability to do things spontaneously. And and I think that I think I like how you drew together um, sort of um, care obligations and obligations to work. Hmm. Because um, I think those are these are sort of two two dimensions that run together, and that that both are sort of major sources of interference with our with our ability to have experiences of spontaneity. Um, and I mean, like, uh, to the extent that I'm calling for policy change, I'm I may be trying to articulate a sort of value that matters to a lot of people, um, and and to. Um, uh, identify what are hopefully some some illuminating ways of talking about it and and understanding its the the th- what what can promote and frustrate this experience right and I think that you know maybe there's some broad sense in which this might be useful I don't know about for like parliament or something but but for for but for for how people think about how to organize their own lives and how to organize politically um, in, in order to promote the realization of these sorts of, of values. Right, right. Um, and I, I think, you know, this, there, there are, you know, some people talk about the increasing tendency of unions to push for um, free time, although I think this has always sort of been a, 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 pre- a presence of, of labor movements ra- rather than just for higher wages. Um, and and I think that that's there's there's something in the in concern about leisure and free time that's also connected to the possibility of experiencing spontaneous freedom. Okay. Um, okay. There are there are two paths I want to go down from here, but I guess one one question that I haven't asked you yet is why? What is the value in spontaneous freedom? Um, like, do you believe that it is something? intrinsically valuable to kind of conscious beings conscious things that are able to kind of evaluate things and make decisions um do you think there is something 
yeah, like wh- where where would you, why do you place such value on um, spontaneous freedom? Good. So um, th- I think there are a few things to say about this. So, so one is maybe close to a claim about its intrinsic value, which is that I think that experiences of spontaneous freedom realize a capacity to give rise to new things in the world, um, thing, things that haven't already been planned out. Right. And I, I think that that is this sort of just a deeply satisfying experience and, 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 and a valuable experience. Um, because, I mean, now there's maybe some further question about why that's a satisfying or valuable experience. And I don't know how much there is to be said about mm. that. Um, uh, other than that, um, in acting in ways that are spontaneously free and seeing other people acting in those ways, we're able to see ourselves as creatures that aren't fixed in what we are, um, but have the capacity to become something else, something something that isn't planned out. Right. Um, and and so and and so there's there's maybe some sort of like connection with hope for the future, that's that's uh, that's built into this sort of experience. And then there are some more um, instrumental forms of value associated with experiences of spontaneous freedom, I think. So I think that experiences of spontaneity are very, are, if not necessarily, at least paradigmatically connected with a certain sort of artistic creativity, which is particularly the sort of like romantic and post-romantic creation of, of artistic geniuses right. um, that's celebrated by Kant in the, in the third critique. Um, where where there's this very heavy emphasis on creating in a way that's opposed to imitation, um, and I and I think that that sort of typically expresses a sort of spontaneous freedom, a, a non-plannedness in in what you're doing. Right. Um, and that's that's a that's a somewhat historically specific value. I think I think that's something that doesn't really show up before Romanticism. Um, it, it, I think it would be a little bit odd to talk about, you know, a um, 15th century farmer having an experience a- of spontaneous freedom in the same way that we do today. Um, and then the last thing that I think is of, is associated with the value of spontaneous freedom, or the, 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 the last value that I think it, it often serves, is that um, experiences of spontaneity provide an opportunity to, to feel that we are not merely our rational deliberative nature um when, when i do something spontaneously um it's it feels to me that i'm doing something that doesn't just come out of my planning capacities and my reasoning capacities there's there's something else that's still me that's a source of action um that i'm not alienated from but that isn't these planning things and i think that in some sort of there's there's some respect in which this might help us feel um, that we are it, it might help sort of attenuate the suffering of existence um, be, because we feel less like we're isolated individual decision making units and and more like there's something you might call it nature or drive or something that that it, it, in 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 which we are and which manifests itself in our in our actions in some ways right. Um. Okay, I guess one question that I that I would ask in response to all of what you've said is that, um, or one observation that that I 
I think I've made is that um, I do you think that because not all or maybe maybe not all people are capable of the kind of creative genius of you know modern postmodern and post enlightenment artists musicians whatever um, but maybe maybe without the kind of without the option to be spontaneous many people are missing out on realizing that they do have the capacity to kind of produce these random spontaneous beautiful things that that the world can appreciate that are new um and i I think you're right and uh i think you're right when you say that there is there is something really really beautiful about kind of new tantalizing things um new music like why why do so many people listen to music that that's a really hard question to answer um but yeah so i guess to turn that into a question um would you i guess maybe you're catering the kind of spontaneous freedom maybe it's catering for both people who are who are already aware of their talents but don't have enough time to pursue them or don't have kind of yeah don't have enough time to kind of be spontaneous but also the people who aren't aware of their spontaneous talents. So are you calling for kind of a, um, a society or, or something? Are you, are you calling for more time for people to be spontaneous? So that, is that where the value comes from? Because the production, maybe it's, maybe there's value from the people who are being artistic or whatever and creating. There's value for them, but there's also value in the product for others. Yes, I think that that's I think that that's right. Um, now, you know, I think the question of like what an optimal social level of spontaneity is is right. a is a, a almost impossible to decide sort of sort of question. Okay. Um, um, but I I I do think that there are these sort of like, well, I think I think lots of people want to have experiences of spontaneity even when they have very limited access to those experiences i think lots i think you know um uh i i i was i was in law before moving to philosophy and um i I spent some time interviewing lawyers and law firms about their professional lives to some extent and 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 i got this impression which i think many other people have too that um you know well, so a commonplace is that like lawyers are miserable because they're working all the time, um, but but I think that particularly there are a lot of people who work in these really uh, time-consuming jobs that feel that they just don't have opportunities for spontaneity, um, and and that's a, sort of a, a great source of sadness, um, and 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 so I think that that's that suggests that lots of people have some sort of yearning for spontaneity spontaneous freedom even when they don't really experience it very yeah, right. often or when they experience it only in very limited domains um like i don't know picking what to buy at the supermarket or something like that um and uh yeah 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 okay um so Okay, that that's quite interesting. Then, was are, are you suggesting that one reason why you didn't go down the path of because I I also I followed a really similar path to you. I started with a law degree as my undergrad, um, 
and got two and a half years in and also kind of funnily enough interviewed I had to for an assignment I interviewed a, a barrister um, an attorney and uh, they they were quite successful and so in their later life I think you know there were holidays every two weeks or something and you know that kind of stuff but I think for the 40 years before they kind of reached this comfortable position they were working like constantly and yeah. and it, it seemed like they were pretty miserable for those 40 years and I don't even know if like if the payoff of being able to go on perpetual holidays is enough to kind of recoup um, to collect what you've lost with 40 years of commitment to these huge firms anyway um, one reason why there's actually so much to this. So I was thinking about it on the way here because I was wondering what I was going to ask you. And I realized that one thing that people found really uncomfortable, that lots of my friends found really uncomfortable, was the spontaneity of my decision to leave. Because they were like, I was moving away from stability. I was moving away from a, a very established path where there would be minimal spontaneity. So, like, if I had stayed with a law degree, presumably I would have done a clerkship. I would have gone into a firm, sold my soul, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I defied that path. And I'm studying philosophy, <laughs> um, which is great. I, I like it. Um, but there's, like, there's a tension here. There is me exercising spontaneity, me being spontaneous and not being aware of it. People kind of revolting against my act of spontaneity because I'm breaching the kind of preordained structures that law students maybe can exist within. You know, there's already paths that they can go down. But at the same time, like, um, yeah, like I, I was very aware of it. And I still, this is like, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't ever want to have, I don't ever want to do anything with my life that allows that prevents me from being, from knowing that I can be spontaneous. And that doesn't mean that I am being spontaneous, but like, yeah, these are all things that I was having thinking the about. Possibility. Yeah, having the possibility. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I guess, did you feel the same way? Like, why didn't you, why didn't, because, I mean, you studied the best law degree in the world you, at Harvard. That That's like... That's great. <laughs> I got, that, that's really great. And so I'm sure there were infinite possibilities for you. And like you probably could have been spontaneous. Like maybe you could have gone to like Morocco and worked in a firm there or something. Um, right. And well, one thing I should say, I, I, I this, this is great. There's a, a lot, a lot there to, to talk about. But uh, what, I just want to say that I, I don't, I don't mean to suggest that sponta- spontaneity is inaccessible to lawyers. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think many lawyers are sort of deeply spontaneous and. But but I I think that particularly the environment of large corporate law firms sort of provides a form of life for associates that is very hostile to the possibility of experiences of of spontaneity in their work. Uh, oh. Well, no, in their lives. Okay, just be, okay. Just because of how consuming it tends to be. Um, it, I mean, and because I think that often you know. They're, 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 it's, it's related, maybe. If you, if you have limited opportunities for spontaneity in your work and that work consumes everything, um, you aren't going to have much opportunity for spontaneity at all. Um, but uh, my own experience, um, 
it's funny. I mean, I I think uh, it wasn't a, going into philosophy wasn't really about spontaneity for me. It was more it was more just about the the attraction of the ideas that I was that I was thinking about. Mm. Um, um, and the opportunity to think about things like spontaneity and and freedom. Um, uh, and 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 the opportunity to think about these questions that are, um, in some sense, very deeply meaningful for how people organize their lives and and you know how they spend their time. Um, so that that was a lot of the attraction of of philosophy, I I think. Mm. Um, the the one thing that, that 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 might be related is that I I think one one great thing about philosophy is that it provides an opportunity for um thinking thinking in ways that don't have any um immediate practical payoff or or, or maybe 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 not even any immediate but no practical payoff at all right. um you know thinking about whether tables exist or not <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, and, 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 and I, and I, and I think that there's sort of a, um, an approach to thinking in philosophy that, I don't know if it expresses spontaneous freedom, but it's at least sort of, um, maybe a fellow traveler with, with experiences of spontaneity that, that it, that is this sort of, um, thinking about questions without having an interest in what the answer to the question is. Mm. Um, and this is, you know, this is this is a form of philosophy that I sometimes feel hostile to because it, it can sort of, um, I don't know, turn into um, sort of some sort of bourgeois ideological activity or something like that. But but at the same time, there's something that's really um, intellectually enlivening, I think, about about this way of approaching questions that doesn't it doesn't look for answers for any sort of further purpose but is just trying to answer questions sort of for the the sake of engaging in that activity yeah right right okay um and and, and that strikes me as kind of related to the to experiences of spontaneity where, yeah. where where you you don't you aren't you aren't like executing something as part of a further plan yeah yeah You're, it's just sort of an immediate response to the circumstances that you find yourself in yeah absolutely um and I think that is like one of the most, I think when, when I have felt the most calm in my life um, and like I've been, I'm like a particularly anxious person and I've struggled with like, I was quite depressed in the past. And I think one thing that really contributed to the way I felt was um, that I approached everything with the hope of finality and closure and kind of an end. Like, I would think about things and hope to kind of get an answer. And even when I first started this podcast, I kind of pitched it as, like, for like finding the answers. But, like, I think, I think I felt a lot more comfortable with myself and with my projects and with my studies and with, with everything, pretty much, when I've approached things in a way that has allowed me to kind of engage with things freely completely freely not with an expectation that there is going to be an end and i think that in itself is a kind of spontaneity because like as, as you said like there is great freedom in that 
because, and I'm sure it, it really liberates your thinking as well. Because if you're if you're looking for an answer, you're probably going to go down, you know, be much more selective about, you know, which paths you go down, which lines you decide to pursue. Um, so yeah, I think I, I really that really resonated with me. Um, what you just said, and yeah, I think I don't know. Like I, at some point in the future, I need to decide what I'm going to do. like yeah i'm going to have to make a decision um and it sounds like yeah there is there is a lot of freedom in doing in kind of taking philosophy um seriously if if you're fortunate enough to kind of you know get attached to an institution or something um yeah because i mean like i can sit at home all i like (laughs) no one's gonna pay me (laughs) right that's right um but see there's the catch there's like the capitalist catch like even even in exercising spontaneity you still have to have like all of these kind of like hooks and things that kind of keep you from falling um absolutely yeah and that's kind of scary like Um, there's almost a bit of a paradox there like a paradox of spontaneity don't you think i don't know if it's a paradox as much as that there are um there are material conditions for experiences of spontaneous freedom um so yeah you need you need like a a place to live and (laughs) and you need food and and um and you need social connections uh you need friendships and 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 so um I don't know that it's a paradox so much as that it suggests that spontaneous freedom is a sort of um, socially and psychologically complex experience. Um, it's it's not it's not something that you could experience sort of in total isolation or um, if you didn't have access to basic material resources. Mm. Okay, so I you I, I saw that you also kind of are interested in twentieth century continental philosophy. And that's, I really like that stuff as well. Um, and one one doctrine or one idea that seemed incredibly uh, relevant to the kind of um, paths that, or claims that you make is the idea of bad faith. Mm. Um, because, and um, yeah, I guess to briefly explain what that is, Maybe, do you think you could provide a, a brief, succinct? Or I, I can try, because I actually thought about this very recently. Go, go for it. Okay. Yeah. okay. Um, so the idea... Are you, are you thinking of Sartre? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so bad faith is is the idea that... Um, so I guess, yeah, Sartre, he, 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 one of his famous examples is the example of a waiter who is kind of um, incredibly obsequious kind of too engaged with his role of being a waiter and I, I don't know returns home and is like damn like maybe maybe I like I, I would like to kind of quit my job but like I'm a waiter and and this is all that I this is all that I will be and this is all that I can be but like I really wish I could you know go to the Amazon and and like do something cool over there um and Sartre would say that he's acting in bad faith that the waiter is acting in bad faith because really he is free and like to to some extent he can quit his job and obviously like you know if this if this person is living paycheck to paycheck maybe maybe they can't maybe they actually do kind of need to work um more but yeah so like how how do you think 
one, was that an apt and, and sufficient description of bad faith? And two, how does it fit into um, your philosophy? Good. I mean, I, that's that all sounds right to me. Although I'm, it's been a while since I've looked at Sartre on this. I've 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 been thinking a little bit more about Beauvoir recently, okay. who has s- sort of similar accounts of um, in in, in um, um, her book on the ethics of ambiguity. Okay. She, she has this whole account of sort of like different ways in which we can um, fail to appreciate our ambiguity of being both um, choosing beings and embodied beings is maybe a way of putting it. Okay. Um, or being both subjectivities and objects. Okay. Um, and one paradigmatic way of failing to do this is, is, is taking yourself... Um, sort of merely to be an object. Yeah, um, right, right. Which, which I think is this is like what the what bad faith is. Yeah. is is about. Yeah. Um, the waiter thinks that he's just the waiter. Yes, and, yeah. that's right. He he thinks that he is what he what he is now. And, yeah, and and um, and so um, the 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 failure um. So it, it might be true, I think, that the waiter's material, the, the waiter's sort of material conditions, circumscribe what's possible for the waiter. But the, the 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 bad faith doesn't come in. It, it's it the bad faith is separate from that. The, the 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 bad faith is this intellectual move of taking those conditions and 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 regarding them as as fixed or or, or as Fixing who you are in some way, and um, and and that corresponds with sort of a way that you can fail to be spontaneously free. I think um, you 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 take yourself to be just what you are. Um, um, there are different ways you might understand that, but mm. but one way that you might understand that is as um, meaning that you don't have sort of a capacity to give rise to new things. Um, the, the 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 things about you that are and will be are already settled, mm. um, and 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 so that's a sort of psychological attitude that you might adopt that would undermine or prevent uh, the possibility of experiencing spontaneous freedom. Mm. Um, and I think one thing that that brings out is that spontaneous freedom is something that can be facilitated and interfered with both by external sort of third party forces and also internally. So, so it's true that like there are ways in which the waiter's material conditions might interfere with the ability to have experiences of spontaneous freedom, but there are also psychological attitudes that you might hold that can interfere with with the ability. If you, you know, if you're mega, if you, if you if you're fixed on a single purpose, uh, if you're monomaniacal and and that and and like nothing else enters into your considerations, if you're like. Ahab and Moby Dick, and your one purpose is getting the whale, and everything else is instrumentalized towards that aim. That's that's a sort of internal thing that can happen hmm. that interferes with your ability to realize experiences of spontaneous freedom. Okay, okay, um, and so yeah, if if you were to kind of th- this is a big ask, but if you were to distill the entire your entire discussion of spontaneity into one sentence of advice for a listener. <laughs> <laughs> what would it be? Oh my. <laughs> um <laughs> I 
afraid that any 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 anything's going to sound pretty trite, but um, <laughs> um, well, I don't know that I have one sentence of advice be- be- okay. be- because I think that what my project is is it's sort of this um, explication of an of a desire and impulse that many or all of us already have, and and. And uh, and um, so it's so it's it's not it's not a corrective to the way that people are are going about things now necessarily so much as just trying to shine some light on on the things that we that we care about, um, and so so maybe if there is a, if there is any sort of advice it's it's more in the political uh, upshots that come from thinking about this which is mm. something like I don't know. Um, organize for 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 greater possibilities for spontaneity mm, mm. and from that from that people could get a pretty clear idea of which groups need support and which well that's a it's a complicated question, yeah yeah but, okay. but yeah, yeah, yeah yeah okay okay well i I uh, thank you for being so generous with your time and well, thank you so much this you. was really delightful yeah thanks I had a really nice time as me well, too Jonathan. thank you all right, Cheers. thank you. Hey, thanks a lot. Thank that you, was, that was, that was that really, was really wonderful. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. So, yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, if, if you enjoyed the episode, consider going on iTunes right now. Right now, that's right. Actually, Apple Podcasts. Um, and leave me a review and tell me what you liked. Please, please do me a favor and do that. That would mean a lot to me. Um, alternatively, actually, additionally, in addition to leaving that review, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, you should support it. Um, you can, as I said before, uh, Patreon, you can use Patreon or you can use PayPal. And um, both of those things, there are links to them on www.alex.co slash contribute. And I'll also put links in the bio to this episode and on my Instagram page. Um, and finally, get in touch with me. Send me a message. Let me know what you thought about the episode because engagement is extremely important. And it also helps me make better episodes because I can get, you know, I can, if there are things that I'm not doing or if there are, th- if there are things that I'm doing well, um, you can let me know. Um, and what else do I need to say? Oh, next week. Okay. Next week I am interviewing the head of the department of philosophy at King's college, London. Um, uh, I'm not sure whether I'll release that episode next Sunday. Um, I might release it later on, but if I do, uh, that'll be great. Um, I will give you some more information about what that, uh, podcast is going to be about, but I imagine it's similar. It's going to be on similar themes about freedom and action and, uh, kind of, you know, how we are supposed to, um, yeah, this is kind of a, re- a recurring theme throughout the podcast, how we are supposed to kind of decide what is the right act, um, uh, what is the right thing to do. Um, and if not, it will be another episode of the On Being miniseries, which I'm still working on. And I think, I think the next one is going to be about uh, my experiences with depression. Um, So that's going to be a pretty heavy episode, I imagine. But anyway, thanks for listening. And um, I will uh, speak to you soon if you contact me. Yeah, contact me. Okay, bye.